My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to the 10th and final episode of Season 4 of the 21st Century Creative. As usual, as the season draws to a close, I'm feeling tired, but also very pleased with the way it turned out. I really enjoyed talking to all of my guests, and I learned a lot personally from talking to them, so I do hope you enjoyed the conversations and you found them helpful on your own journey. So firstly, thank you very much to our guests for their time and their expertise and wisdom and stories. Thank you also to the 21st Century Creative team, to Javier Whaler and his team at Breaking Waves for the music and the sound production, to Irene Hoffman for designing the show's identity, and to Alexandra Amor for editing the interview transcripts that you can find on the website. And a very special thank you to you, for listening and for sending me your feedback and leaving reviews and telling other people out the show. I quite literally could not do this without you. And even if I could, there wouldn't be any point. So, so I'm really grateful for your support and encouragement along the way. I'm pleased to say plans are afoot for season five of the podcast. I've already recorded some great interviews and it's shaping up to be another good season. And by the end of season five, we will reach our 50th episode. So I guess I should do something special for that. Let me give it some thought. I'm aiming to launch season five by the end of the year. So if you want to be sure you get it as soon as it's released, then do make sure you're subscribed in iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. If you would like me to send you the show via email, and also to get the free 21st Century Creative Foundation course, then go to 21stcenturycreative.fm slash free course and sign up with your email address. If you're finding the show helpful and you would like to make me smile, and also to help the show succeed, then one thing you can do in five seconds or even less is go to the 21st Century Creative in iTunes or in the podcast app on your phone and scroll down and tap the screen to give it, hopefully, a five-star rating. You don't need to write a review, you just tap once to rate the show, and you're done. With sincere thanks from me. The podcast is taking a break, but my coaching practice will remain open. So if you are an experienced creative, meaning you've got at least five to ten years' experience in your creative field, and you want to make big changes in your work and your career, then let's talk about that. If you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then go to 21stcenturycreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. I'll be in touch once I've read through your answers. Okay, we are not finished yet with season four, and today I have a remarkable interview with singer and playwright Monique DeBose, 
where she talks about the very unusual source of inspiration for her latest album and stage show. Before the interview, as this is the final episode of the season, I thought today might be a good day to invite you to look back at your own past work and start unlocking some of the hidden value in your back catalogue. If you've been listening to this show from the beginning, you may recall that back in episode 5 of season 1, I outlined a fundamental strategy for your career as a 21st century creative. Forget the career ladder. Start creating assets. The argument I made was that there's no career ladder for people like you and me. In other words, there's no clearly mapped out career progression via a series of promotions, pay rises, and increasingly fancy perks and job titles. As an independent creative, or at least an independently minded creative, if you want to progress in your career by doing more fulfilling work, earning more money, and attracting more opportunities over time, you should focus on creating assets. As I said back then, an asset is something you own and control that generates value for you over time. Traditional assets include things like a company or an investment portfolio or real estate that can earn you money while you're busy doing other things. And if you're a creative, you can create certain categories of assets out of thin air. For example, your portfolio of creative work, which can earn you money and also attract opportunities. The intellectual property in your work, such as the copyright or the trademark of your company. Social and reputational assets, such as your network of professional contacts, your own brand and your association with other prestigious brands like your publisher or your gallery or your record label. Another category of assets is online assets, such as a blog or a website or a YouTube channel, a mailing list, or even your followers on social media. Now, the most successful and the most fulfilled creators over the long term are the ones who spend as much time as possible creating new assets. Life is very different when you have a back catalogue of great work an audience for your ideas, a great reputation in your field, and a network of skilled collaborators. You can get more done and earn more money in less time with less effort. So it's vital that we carve out regular time to create new assets. But to realise the full value of an asset, it's not enough just to create it. Otherwise, that collection of files on your hard drive or canvases in your back room would magically earn money for you every month. To make the most of your creative assets, you need to actively manage them. At the bare minimum, your track record should be clearly visible on your website. If nobody knows you did all that work, it's not helping your career. Yet, it's amazing how many creatives I talk to who tell me they've been too busy to update their website with this information. If you sell products, 
you want to make sure that these are available on your website or in stores or all the relevant online retail outlets. For example, if you're an author, you want to make sure all your books are available in all formats, print, ebook, audiobook, and so on, and in all the bookshops where your readers like to shop. And again, I meet plenty of creatives who haven't found the time or who even forgot to make sure that all of their products, which could be earning them money every month, are available to buy. Licensing is another source of income and opportunity that's often overlooked. If you're an author, licensing your books for translation into foreign languages opens up another source of income, without having to write anything more than your signature on a contract. If you're a musician, you could license your work for soundtracks. If you're an artist, there may be surprisingly lucrative opportunities out there to license your images for use in a range of different settings, and so on. You don't even need to license your work to someone else to generate extra income from it. As Brian Clark explained to me years ago, you could repurpose your existing work into multiple different formats. You could turn your album into a live show, or your live show into an album. You could write the screenplay of your novel, or vice versa. You could turn a series of blog posts into a book or a workshop or an e-learning course. You could turn your book into an audiobook or your podcast into a book. You could make a limited edition series of your prints and sell them all as well as the original. You could perform your comedy routine on stage and film it and put it up on YouTube to attract more bookings. These very words you are listening to right now are available in multiple formats. You see, as well as sending you the recording on this podcast, I'm publishing them as an article on my blog at lateralaction.com and also on medium.com and reaching people who would rather read than listen to a podcast. If you really think about it and do some research, there are all kinds of ways you could reach a wider audience, extract more value, and attract more opportunities from the work you have already created so far in your career. But the trouble is, you and I are creators, not extractors. We're so keen to get on with the next exciting new project that we often overlook the potential of our back catalogue. Extracting the value of old work looks boring compared to creating something new. Plus, we may not know how to do it, and the return on investment isn't obvious. Now, I have to admit, by nature, I'm the world's worst at this. I always have several new projects I want to get going on, so the idea of stopping and going back over old stuff isn't very appealing. But if I don't do this from time to time, then I pay the price. For example, my main website had the same design theme for over a decade. I knew it needed updating, but the site basically worked okay, so I could never get excited about revamping it. Then I noticed my search rankings had dropped and discovered Google was penalizing websites that were not mobile responsive. Even that didn't get me to take action. The old design theme literally started falling apart, with bits of the site disintegrating before my eyes before I finally updated it and hired a developer to rebuild it for me. 
Now it's looking much better, and my search rankings have bounced back. I sleep better knowing it's delivering a better experience for my website visitors and also doing a better job for my business. Another example, another asset I have that I originally created almost 10 years ago is the 21st Century Creative Foundation course. This is a 26-week creative career course that teaches you the fundamental creative and professional skills you need to succeed as a 21st century creative. I give it away for free via email. So, as well as helping students, it helps me grow my mailing list and communicate with my audience. And after 10 years, I realized that some lessons were showing a bit of wear and tear with broken links and advice on some topics that was getting a little outdated. So earlier this year, once I finished season three of the podcast, I rolled up my sleeves and went back over the entire course, fixing all the broken links and updating some of the content of the lessons. I'm still working on a few bits and pieces, but the course is in a much better place now. And rereading it for the first time in a while, I was quite pleasantly surprised. I think it's a great course, and I'm proud to be sending it out and helping my students every week. If you haven't enrolled on the course, you can sign up right now for free at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash free course. Now, going back and revising my old website content was not the most exciting work I've done this year, but I'm really glad I made time to do it. And let me tell you, it felt great to get back to creating something new when I started recording season four of the podcast. So I am getting better at this, but I still have plenty to do. On my to-do list for later this year are print editions of two of my four books, plus audiobooks of all four of them. I'll let you know when I get them done. So, what can you do to make the most of the assets you've already created in your career so far? Here's a good way to get started. Step one, go through your website, your hard drives, your studio cupboards, your filing cabinet, etc., etc. Make a list of all your assets in the following categories. Your portfolio of creative work. Your intellectual property assets, such as the copyright in the works or the trademark associated with your brand. Social assets, such as your network or the audience of people that you've got permission to contact. Reputation assets, such as your brand or your association with other prestigious brands like publishers, galleries, record labels, and so on. Any prizes and awards you've won also go in the category of reputation assets. Online assets, including a website, blog, a podcast, a mailing list, a YouTube channel, social media profiles, and so on. Systemic assets, and by this I mean Any kind of system or process that you have that you know how to operate and that benefits your work. It could be a productivity system or a specialist creative process or a business model that generates value for your customers and your business. Last but not least, business assets such as your range of products or your company itself. Step two. Write down all the ideas you can think of for extracting more value from these assets. Start with the simple stuff like updating the portfolio on your website 
or making sure all your products are available for sale. And don't forget to think about repurposing your work into different formats. Step three, for specialists in different areas who can advise you how to generate more value from these assets. For instance, you might talk to an agent or a consultant about how to go about translation or licensing deals. Step four, very importantly, reward yourself with work on something new. A good approach over the longer term is to alternate intensive work on new creative projects with bursts of work on managing your assets in between the projects. This has the benefit of maintaining your creative energy as well as taking good care of your assets. If you're a creative professional, you've probably noticed by now that rejection and criticism are a fact of life for you. If you're an artist of any kind, your work will be rejected by editors, curators, and other gatekeepers. And each time you put it in front of the public, you expose yourself to criticism. If you're a performer, you may have had to deal with the criticism live and in person, face to face. Just to get on the stage or in front of the camera, you're going to have to go through a lot of rejection. If you're an entrepreneur, you face rejection by customers, partners, and investors. Those same people won't hesitate to criticize you if they're unhappy. At some point, you've probably had a well-meaning friend or family member tell you not to take it so personally. And whoever said that, bless them, is almost certainly not a creative themselves. Because any creator will confirm it's almost impossible not to take it personally, at least at first. You put your heart and soul into your work, so it feels like your heart and soul are the very things being rejected and criticized. To help you deal with these challenges, I've written a book, Resilience, Facing Down Rejection and Criticism on the Road to Success. It starts by explaining why it's normal to take rejection and criticism personally, and what you can do about it. It's full of practical tips from the many years I've spent coaching creatives like you dealing with rejection and criticism in their careers. And there are lots of real-life examples from my own experience as a writer and creative entrepreneur, and also from famous creators, past and present. If you'd like to be more resilient and creative in the face of rejection and criticism, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash resilience and pick up your copy of Resilience today. Monique Debose is an award-winning singer-songwriter and playwright who has toured throughout America, Europe, India, and Asia. Her third album, The Sovereign One, debuted recently at number two on the iTunes jazz charts. Inspired by her experience of what it means to be half African-American, half Irish-American, Monique also wrote the funny, heartwarming, and disruptive one-woman show, Mulatto Math, 
summing up the race equation in America, to initiate a different kind of conversation about race relations in the United States. Monique is also a coach, speaker, and workshop leader who helps others to follow her example and live, quote, fully expressed, clear, and unapologetic. I first met Monique at a coaching event, a coaching intensive in Los Angeles, hosted by Rich Litvin, who is Monique's husband. You may recall Rich was a guest in season three of the show when he gave us a great interview about the price of being a high performer. At that intensive, Monique did a session with us on vocal improvisation as a way of unlocking emotions and communication, and I heard at first hand what an extraordinary voice she has. So I wasn't surprised to hear her new album had been so well received. And I've found it a really compelling listen. I've had it on heavy rotation in the run-up to interviewing her, and I'm delighted to say we can hear some music from the album in the course of Monique's interview. I invited Monique onto the podcast to ask her about the source of her inspiration for the album and her one-woman show, and I have to say I was surprised. Because it turns out that these two works have their origin in a very creative and resourceful response to a medical diagnosis. I'll let Monique tell that story in her own words, but I'll just say that this is one of the interviews where my guest really digs deep and shares something profound about the nature of creativity and inspiration. Monique is someone who really embodies the ethos of the 21st century creative. She's a terrific artist who doesn't shy away from the challenges life sends her, but uses them to create extraordinary work and shares it with the rest of us. In the course of the interview, you'll also hear some of her music, and I'm betting this conversation with Monique DeBose is one that will stay with you long after you've finished listening. Monique, when did you start singing? I started singing out loud in front of people probably when I was 18 years old. I'd always wanted to perform and sing, and I'd be in my childhood home, you know, singing with records in a room, roller skating in the backyard as if I was a performer singing. But if it was in front of somebody, I clammed up quickly. So it wasn't until I was a freshman in college at Berkeley that I joined um, an improv singing group because that felt like the safest way to enter. Improv singing? What's that? Yeah. So improvisational singing is when you create a piece of music on the spot, seemingly out of nowhere. Um, So I would be standing, it's circle singing. Uh, We'd stand in a circle and... uh, somebody would start a riff. So for example, it's just like day by day, day by day, day. And then a group would start singing that. And then somebody would add another part to it and then add maybe another part to it. And then somebody would solo sing over it. So it was a great way to feel like you couldn't make a mistake. And that was what I was, that's what I needed to actually dive into the world of singing. Hmm. I've done a bit of improv acting, and I do like that whole culture that you support each other and make each other look good, which you very much have in that. But I'd mm-hmm. never come across a singing version of it. 
So do you know Bobby McFerrin? Or have you heard of him? The guy who sings, don't worry. Ooh, 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 ooh. Oh, anyway, be happy. Oh, yeah. Bobby yeah. McFerrin, uh, that is like his most commercial hit, but... He has the most phenomenal group of vocalists around him. One of them is my mentor, a woman named Rhiannon. Um, and you should, your listeners should dive into his music. It's all improvisational singing. It's phenomenal. Listening to your music, you have this incredibly expressive voice. Was it always that easy to express such deep feelings? My entire face just dropped when you said that easy. Um, it has been an <laughs> uphill battle. I mean, it sounds it. I don't know, but you tell me what it's like. Well, no, it has not always been that easy. <laughs> um, there, is this, there was this point I got to, and I'm happy to share what the details of that were, um, but where I got to a point where I couldn't, I couldn't afford to not sing from the gut, from the soul anymore. And the desire to sound good and be what people think a singer should sound like. Or I went as deep as, well, you're a, a mixed race woman, you're a black woman, so you need to sound like the women who can do all that. Like all, you need to be that. And so it has mm -hmm. been such a journey to really be able to find my own self and my own voice. So no, it has not always been easy. <laughs> so how, how did you do it? I mean, how did you get away from, because I mean, by definition, if you're singing in public, you're performing, you presumably you're aware of how you're coming across to other people. How, how did you get past that? Well, it's, it's still, you know, uh, in in process and i think it will always be until i take my last breath but there are two things that show up for me when i when i hear that question first i was so paralyzed in trying to be something that i just didn't see how i could be that it took a, all the joy out of singing and i loved singing and making sounds with my voice so i got to a point of exhaustion that's mm -hmm. one thing and then yeah. the second uh the universe uh, swooped in and helped me out by giving me the diagnosis of something called a desmoid tumor in late 2016 in my abdominal wall. Right. And that was a complete shift in how I saw life and saw myself. And doctors were telling me, you know, you're going to be on pharmaceuticals for the rest of your life. That was a no for me. I wasn't going to do that. Mm -hmm. And the second opinion doctors told me, well, we'll just cut out part of your abdominal wall and put in a mesh. You're done having children, right? And I was done, but I did not feel like that was my my solution either. Yeah. And so I went in and started having conversations with the tumor. Um, I have a master's in spiritual psychology, and this is just some of the work that we do. Mm -hmm. And what it told me was, you have been holding back so much. You have been keeping so much inside, so much of who you are hidden because you're worried about what people will think. You're worried about not doing it right. You're worried about hurting others. And you can't afford that anymore. All that energy and creativity has created me. So let's move through this. You need to express. And so from that point, that's actually what had me write my one woman show. That's what had me actually write this particular album project. And in that I decided, and it was really like I was the decision was made for me and I just, you know, had to go ahead and go along with it that I couldn't pretend anymore and I couldn't 
try to be something I wasn't. I had to stay like my North star was you need to express what is you fully. And that's what I did. And that's what I've been doing. And you got this from doing inner work, focusing and dialoguing with the tumor. hundred percent, hundred percent. Wow. And that was one of the hardest things I ever did because in the world we live in, or most of us live in, uh, you know, Western medicine really like is, is God and is King. And people are worried about you who love you, who have that Western medicine, you know, knowledge. And I had to stand, I had to be willing to trust myself and trust my own inner wisdom in the face of everybody telling me that's stupid. You shouldn't do that. How do you know it's going to work? All of those things. And so I had to just keep coming back to this is what you're being told. Trust it. So it's been a, a process. So all of that also just adds to me really being able to trust my own voice in the singing capacity as well. And you say that there were two creative projects that came out of that. Let's start with the album, The Sovereign One. And again, you know, I know it's been very well received, did very well on iTunes when it launched and so on. But let's go back to the source of inspiration for the album. Where did this come from for you? The Sovereign One uh, came from claiming back all the parts of myself that I had either hidden away, shamed away, given away, decided I wasn't good enough. So what was the point of having it anyway? I claimed back every aspect of myself that I could be conscious of and even like delved into the unconscious and just said anything that needs to come back to make me whole, come back. And so this project was me fully integrating and accepting all the parts of myself because I feel like that was such a a barrier for me to feeling happy, to feeling like I was living life the way I was supposed to be. So that's, yeah, that's where it came from. And could you maybe take one song from the album and just talk us through where you got the inspiration and then what was the process that you went through to turn that into a finished song? Sure. Um, I am going to talk about, I guess, Damaged Goods, which is the single on the project. Maybe we could just hear a little bit of Damaged Goods before we hear you talk about it, Monique, because it's a terrific song. And if we can just hear a little bit of that, and then people have a bit of context for when you talk about it. Damaged Goods is a song uh, I wrote with two amazing co-writers, my friends Isaac and Torald Corin. Um, and it's really an ode to all the faults, quote unquote, that we walk around with as human beings. It's acknowledging, yes, we are insecure and small and maybe unfaithful and resentful and we're out of integrity. And 
even still, we are good at, you know, the heart of who we are. Um, oftentimes people feel like, well, I'm damaged or I'm broken or something's wrong with me that is uh, not fixable. And this song is really speaking to, yeah, you may be damaged in one way of looking at it, but trust that you are all good. And so the song um, really is speaking to owning all the parts of yourself. I don't know if you know about that Japanese, um, I'm going to say tradition. I, I, I can't even remember what it's called, but if a vase breaks, instead of throwing it away, uh, uh, artists or people will um, put it back together with beautiful gold paint. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then that just makes it even that much more beautiful. That to me is kind of how damaged goods is. It's really owning, yeah, you may be somebody who is, you know, really insecure, but let's like really own all the parts of you because the whole of you is exquisitely good, is beautiful. So I just wanted people to not feel like they have, this was it. I, I was exhausted from trying to be something I just wasn't. And I don't think that's fair to any human being walking the planet. So this was like, forget it all, people. Let's just, let's just be us and let's look at us and let's love us as we are. We're all divine beings having a human experience. Let's just enjoy all of our humanity. Well, thank you. That certainly comes across beautifully in the song. Thanks. And what does the title, The Sovereign One, mean to you? Well, again, it's speaking to really being someone who is fully integrated into herself, someone who stands in herself, who um, I don't want to say doesn't need, because I believe as humanity, we all live in community and we need each other, but I, doesn't need others to validate, to justify yeah. her existence. That's what I mean by the sovereign one. I am. That was like a claim and a call and an intention. And the music is um, reflecting that, that I am now, I am sovereign unto myself. I belong to nobody. I owe nobody. And I move around full, whole, complete, and perfect. That's, that's what it means. And not content with creating amazing music and a terrific album, you've also created and toured with a very unusual one-woman show. Why do you call it unusual? <laughs> well, that's what the word is on the street. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. That's that's funny. Yes. Um, I'd had the desire to create a one-woman show for a good while, but nothing was making me actually sit down and commit to doing the work. So I don't think I was ready to tell the story that I've told yet. But when the diagnosis of the tumor showed up and the information from the tumor showed up, I was clear that I needed to write this show. And the show is called Mulatto Math, Summing Up the Race Equation in America. And what I do is I watch my own journey into discovering who I am. I come from a mixed race background. I have an African-American father from the segregated South. He was the first in his family to graduate from college. And then I have an Irish-American mother from upstate New York who came from an educated family background. Um, and just trying to navigate who I was 
where I belonged and what was okay for me to say in this company and what was not okay for me to say in that company. It got to be such a, um, it was again, me trying to like be right and be enough and be safe for other people. So a lot of my growing up included really, uh, hiding parts of myself or not being fully myself. And so this show really navigates my, it, uh, my journey growing into myself and it's a very raw, it's a very real and, um, dare I say myself, a very powerful experience for me as an artist, uh, but also for audience members. Um, so it integrates, um, I have a degree in mathematics, an undergraduate degree in mathematics from Berkeley. So I've created all these math equations that kind of help, they tie the story together with how my binary brain was thinking about race and identity. Um, and then I also have original music in it, uh, where I perform it with a live bassist when we do the full show. Um, and then a bunch of characters I play, different family members, different people in my life. And uh, it's, and I always have a talk back with the show as well, because I feel like it would be out of integrity for me to like really open up this huge can of worms and really have people um, confronting questions around race and identity, whatever their ethnic or um, yeah, their ethnic background is. Um, I always have a talk back after so people can really digest and integrate and actually share in quote unquote mixed company, mm -hmm. uh, their ideas and feelings. So it's really powerful. And I'm really grateful that it was asked to be born. But I remember, Mark, I would be sitting at my computer typing um, the script, writing it, and just bawling my eyes out saying, I cannot write this. I cannot say this out loud. And the tumor or the energy from the tumor was like, you have no choice. You have to share this story. So wow, it's real. <laughs> so one of the quotes I keep thinking of in relation to writing is from Robert Frost, the great American poet, when he said, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. Mm, you know, if, if you don't feel it as you put it down on paper or on the, on the screen, they're not going to feel it. So you have to yeah. go to that place that you want to take the audience to. But that takes a lot of courage, huh? Yeah, it's, it has been, it, when I first started uh, performing that show about a year ago, it felt like I was completely naked and not only naked, it felt like my skin was not on this body. So I just felt so raw. And as I've continued to do the show, it's as if the skin that I had for all the time before the show or for a lot of the life before the show, like that was the skin of hiding. That was the skin of being not fully myself, being what you needed me to be. And so it was as if everything was stripped. And then with each performance of the show, new skin started to grow. And it's skin that is really, um, it's tough. It's um, supple. It's um, flexible. It's just, it's a beautiful skin. It takes such good care of me. Um, it's almost Teflon in a way, but not fully Teflon. <laughs> it's just a new skin has grown. And it continues to grow, um, but it's a beautiful skin for me to walk around in as I continue with life. So 
I'm really grateful for the process and for the show, for myself and for others, because I know people are moved and changed by the show. So I've got to be maybe a little culturally sensitive here. I'm not from the United States. And obviously, Mm -hmm. those of us outside the US, we see in here, there's a lot of media and debate around race in America, but it it doesn't compare with having lived your life in that particular country. So maybe you could give us an idea of the kind of context that you're stepping into with a show like this. Because as I understand it, you were engaging with the issue in a very unusual way. I still want to know what unusual means. (laughs) Like, what have you heard? Um, Yeah, well, you know, I can speak to my experience, and that's what I do with the show. I really use my experience as a microcosm for the United States. Yeah. Um, What I feel like is in the United States, there there are two camps running, and I'm sure there are more. So this is a very broad generalization. So please know that I know that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I noticed that in a lot of African Americans, there is fear, there is uh, resentment, there is uh, non-trusting of white people in our culture. That doesn't mean that people, you know, don't succeed and move through life and have great lives. But I think those are undercurrents in relation to the United States. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, um, I'm looking at, uh, and again, obviously there are more than black and white people in the United States. I'm just speaking to those two groups currently. Mm -hmm. And again, these are generalizations. (laughs) Um, But on the white side, what I notice is that there is um, either desire but having no clue how to step into that desire uh, to be in connection with uh, African-Americans, or uh, there is ignorance. And to me, the ignorance is not necessarily, um, it comes from an unconscious place. Uh, It it comes from a a place of protecting uh, themselves uh, from what even if they don't know it in their conscious mind, uh, what they know their his- their country has been built on, which is um, having to um, to uh, what's the word dehuman uh, dehumanize um, other humans in service to uh, your way of life. So that just lives in the DNA of the country and lives in the DNA of. Uh, for lack of a better term, white people in the United States. So even if there is this desire to like bridge the gap until people are willing to actually look at that and speak that and not to be like made wrong for it, but to actually just be willing to acknowledge, I think both sides are at an impasse. And so even if there is this desire to be, um, to integrate and be present and integration is the word that integration and surrender are the words that run my life. Quite honestly, integration on many levels, surrender on many levels, but, um, people will not be able to actually move through and move past and integrate into what they're actually wanting if they're unwilling to see both sides. So that's, that's context. And I mean, it sounds like a very brave thing to do to step into this context. Were you not just tempted to leave these things for for someone else to say while you just got on with your music? I couldn't get on. That was the problem. Trust me, if I've said this, I had a teacher once who said, um, she was teaching what she was doing and I was learning from her. And she said, Monique, if you can walk away from this, walk away. 
And I could walk away from it. So I did. And I kind of never understood what, like why she said that, Mm -hmm. but this, I'm like, oh, this is my thing. If I could walk away from this, I would 100% walk away from it, but I can't. I feel like it's the charge my soul has been given to really integrate all of the parts of myself, which also includes integrating all of the parts of this country because that is what I'm made from. Mm. I just feel like that's been put imprinted on my soul and that's what I have to do. But trust me, if I could walk away, Mark, I would be on a beach. <laughs> And can you give us an example, maybe? So we've, you know, we've got the context, we've got your intention, we've got a sense of maybe what's at stake here. But can you give us an example of how you address this in the show? What's the format of the show that allows people to see this and experience it differently? I think the number one thing is that it is a very vulnerable show. And by that, I mean... I am speaking family secrets and they weren't necessarily told to me as family secrets or experiences secrets, Mm -hmm. but when they're out in public, people get very uncomfortable. It's been such a journey with my mom in this show, uh, in doing the show. And she's one of the most supportive people. I'm really like proud of who she is in the world because I was sharing things about her unwillingness to accept that or to look past her own struggle to see someone else's, see uh, African-American culture struggle. Um, I'm speaking to bringing up stories about my granddaddy on my dad's side who um, was a longshoreman and fell 30 feet in the air from the air and had a broken back, broken pelvis and two broken bones. And when uh, the men he worked with took him to the nearest hospital, which was the quote unquote white hospital. They literally put him out on the sidewalk with a broken back, broken pelvis, and two broken legs. And he had to wait until my uncle came and an ambulance came to take him to the community hospital. So I'm speaking mm. real things. Yeah. Um, I talk about also just my experience going into college and not knowing where I fit in, seeing all the black students together in the lunch, uh, the dining commons and wanting desperately to go over to them. Cause I knew that was where I wanted to be, but not knowing how to enter that space because it felt like it was a very protected world. So I talk about things that are initially embarrassing, um, shameful, um, Yeah. And also then the level of like disrespect possibly people could see as a person telling, you know, my family stories. I mean, quite a few people in the audience, it's happened more than two times where people have raised their hand and said, your parents aren't alive anymore. Right. And I'm like, no, they're actually sitting right there in the audience. So, and I think that piece is also really important too, because my family is intact. My family is supportive and loving. Um, and I think it's just, it's not just the show. It's everything that surrounds the show as well. That, uh, I think makes it such a powerful piece for people. And what are the talkback sections of the show like? They're wonderful. Um, people in, and again, I say it in mixed company, people, um, who may never run the same circles are in the audience. And because the show is so vulnerable, because I am so vulnerable, 
um, it really creates a container of safety and openness just in the entire space, mm-hmm. which is so beautiful. And that's one of the things I feel is one of my gifts as a creative professional too. That's just one of the things I've been given to do uh, and to offer to people. Um, so people are asking questions and identifying and sharing their stories. I had an Irish former nun in the audience who was maybe like 70 saying, you just told my story. Like it was just, <laughs> maybe that's a Scottish accent. Sorry, European people. Uh, but And then I have African-American men who are 50 saying, yes, everybody walks through a field of landmine. It's an opportunity for people to see not just an actor on stage, mm-hmm. but to see real people in real time being vulnerable, being open and sharing their stories. I have white people who say, you know, I have um, a mixed niece and I never ever thought about the things you bring up in the show. And I want to go back and just kind of get in curiosity with her to hear what her actual story is instead of the assumptions we make about people. So it's beautiful. I love it. And people really get value from it. And where are you taking this next? Mulatto Math. Hmm. Um, (laughs) It's so funny. The cheeky part inside of me was like, wherever it wants to be taken. Hmm. Um, I'm continuing to, you know, reach out to festivals, um, to reach out to um, theaters as well as universities. I've done it a couple of times at universities with, you know, workshops attached afterwards. I also, you know, with the spiritual psychology, I, I've created beautiful workshops around identity, around compassion, around race um, relations, all kinds of things. So um, doing more of all of that, really. So it's just constantly in motion of sending out materials about the show and being in conversation same with the album like it's just as an artist (laughs) an independent artist it's continuous work but I could see it being a tool uh, for people who are policy makers um, change makers so that it's a, a a step into it can act as a portal for people to um make shifts and change to really raise the vibration of where we all currently live. Yeah. Enter, kiss and be quiet. Lay on the bedroom floor. He touches me while she goes wild. They're mine in the moment. Love me like this or leave me. I won't pretend no more. I'm dancing in my own desire. To myself devoted. And not only do you do the music and the show, but you're also an agent of change yourself for other people as a coach and and a workshop leader. How does that relate to the other two aspects of your work? It's all the same, honestly, in my book. It's really about authentic expression. It's about being a vehicle for change for people and being a portal. That's a word that really has come into my consciousness a lot lately. Um, So my themes always, I'm not, you know, an accountability coach. I am not even, uh, yeah, I'm somebody who helps people create vision, but really helps get integrated into themselves. And my belief is that when we are fully integrated or when we're on the path to full integration, um, the sky's the limit. And a lot of the work I do is really helping people 
uh, creating space for people to actually be willing to look at all the parts of themselves. Because a lot of times we just don't want to look at it because we've been told that who we are is wrong or we've been shamed out of being who we truly are. So I really help people in those arenas to really just be fully integrated into themselves. And presumably you find this comes up in relation to things other than race or... 100%, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah, in terms of what we want to be doing in the world, what kind of relationships we want to be in, um, reaching goals that we just think are not available to us for whatever the reasons we've been told or learned, you know, that helpless behavior. So it's spans the entire spectrum of life, quite honestly. Yeah. Race is one piece of it. It's the piece for me that I could directly identify and tell this particular story. Um, but yes, it, it really transcends my coaching. Yeah. Nobody's ever actually come to me around race yet, but I've always been curious about creating a workshop around race for people, but no, that's not, that's not the specialty in my coaching. And what are the implications of all of this around creativity maybe you know so if somebody's listening to this thinking okay well so what are the implications of for me as a creator what would you say some of the biggest lessons that you would like to impart from this journey that you've been on i think the biggest lesson that jumps out so strongly is you were born exactly the way you are supposed to be there is nothing about you that is wrong or a mistake or needs to be changed Yes, we are always growing and we are refining, but the core essence of who you are is perfect, whole, and complete. So my offering and what I want people to walk away with is the thing that you are thinking is wrong about you and that you need to hide away and minimize is probably something that needs a second look, a more up-close look, because what I normally find is that thing is really your gift. That thing is really your doorway into you fully being yourself. Um, And when we are fully ourselves, you cannot help but be um, magnetic to people. You cannot help but be magnetic to the things um, that are actually in your heart that you want. So that's what I would say. So for me, like the perfect example around singing, I was not... Um, Whitney Houston. I was not Mariah Carey and I was mad about it. And so I stopped singing. And when I got to the point of, no, your voice is your voice. You don't need to be anybody else. That freed me up so much. It let me let go of trying to be something that I wasn't. And it actually gave me the energy to focus and be more of who I am. And when we're more of who we are, people feel, people trust us. People believe us because we are in alignment and in integrity with ourselves. So that's what I want to offer. I was very long-winded, but I hope the point got made. That was a great point. Beautifully made. So maybe this is a good time for you to set our listener your creative challenge, Monique. So if anybody's new to the show, this is the point of the show where I invite my guests to set a challenge to the listener something that you can go away and do or get started on within the next seven days. And that is related to the theme of the interview. So Monique, what creative challenge would you like to set us? I love this idea. And it's so great that you do this um, for your listeners. It's such a gift. The creative challenge that I came up with was 
it's related to what we were talking about in the beginning, that improv uh, singing or that improv creation with the voice. Um, I invite listeners to take a moment, maybe for seven days, or give yourself the challenge of even a, three days, of each day tuning into your body and really setting an intention and asking your body, what part of me body wants to be heard or has something to express to me? And when you just get quiet in that space, there will be a part of your body that really flags itself or raises its quote unquote hand Mm. to you. So when that part of the body shows itself from that place, take a moment to really tune into that. And what that means is just get present with it. Ask what, what do you want me to hear? And then let, this is the really bold part, let yourself be the vehicle for that body part to express through your voice. It might be a sound, it might be a melody, it might be words, but let yourself um, be that vehicle to let that part of the body express itself. And the challenge on top of that is to not judge what comes out, not how great it sounds or what it says, and not having any expectation of yourself to do anything with it. This challenge is really to offer you an opportunity to learn how to listen and use your voice to let your body speak to you. Because I believe our body is our wisest tool, really. And you know, Monique, listening to you describe this, I'm thinking, on the one hand, it's obviously, and your work is testament to this, this is a path to some really deep, very profound, meaningful work. On the other hand, I'm also thinking, I bet when you let yourself go with this exercise, it's really a lot of fun. It's so fun. It's so fun. I've, I've run workshops called Spring into Self-Love. I do, I do it each, um, each season. I've got Summer of Self-Love, Fall into Self-Love. The winter one was a little bit hard for me to create a title. <laughs> but I take people for 40 days and we, do, um, we create an improv every day. Like it's a challenge. And then I meet with people weekly just to kind of support them along their journey of it. But it's an amazing process. And watching people do that over the course of 40 days is phenomenal. The amount uh, of themselves that they now have access to, the lightness, the the raised vibration that they um, just exist in is beautiful. So it will be fun for people. Great. Well, I personally, I'm going to have a go at this. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I do hope, dear listener, that you are going to, to do this in the privacy of your own space uh, and really let go and enjoy it. So, Monique, thank you so much. You've taken us on a, a really amazing journey today. And I can tell that this has been a very, you know, these two projects have been a, a really big and important cycle of creativity for you. Are you able to say anything about future projects that are in the pipeline or is that still under wraps it's still under wraps i love that you asked that though that's beautiful um i'm 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 writing more music um i am figuring out i said it's under wraps and here i'm talking um i'm figuring out a way to really um yeah that's what i'll say (laughs) (laughs) that's it okay that's great (laughs) For now. All right. <laughs> and so where can people go to listen to your music, to find out about the show? Um, I do hope there are some more upcoming dates where people can come and see the show for themselves. Where should people go to find out about all of that? So there's, funny enough, funny enough, 
three different websites. So uh, I'm sorry about that, everybody. For the show, it's mulattomath.com, M-U-L-A-T-T-O-M-A-T-H.com. For the music, it's moniquedebosemusic.com. And then for coaching, it's moniquedebose.com. And if you'd like to follow my music on Spotify, you can just find Monique DeBose and follow me there uh, for new music and things coming. And then also on Instagram for Mulatto Math, it's at Mulatto Math Play. I'd love for you to follow me there. For the music, it's Monique DeBose Artists. And I'd love for you to follow me there. Thanks so much. Great. And I will make sure we have those obviously in the show notes as usual. So, Monique, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I'm sure I will be getting lots of delighted feedback from listeners over this week's episode. So thank you. Thank you so much, and it's really been my pleasure. So thank you, Mark. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the backlist episodes of the podcast at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, I do hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful if you could take a couple of seconds to just go to the iTunes podcast app and give the show a rating. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up for the course at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.